For Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, I'm Nick Hennon, and this is SciVibe. We're here today to gain a better understanding about how COVID moves in multi-room buildings. It's a very complex topic, but PNNL researchers have taken a deeper look at how this works. So when COVID-19 hit, I remember I was on business travel and I was listening to all of the discussions on the news about this argument that we only needed to be six feet apart. And uh, I remember standing in a hotel room with the ventilation to my back thinking those little tiny particles and droplets have to travel farther than six feet due to the ventilation on the inside of the room. And that got me really thinking about some of the questions about how COVID works and about how things transmit both within buildings and in general. In terms of science, a lot of the big breakthroughs do come when you bring together people from different backgrounds and different skill sets that have different ways of looking at the problems, which was necessary really to address this. Science. Technology. Scientific discovery. This is SciVibe. SciVibe first today. Two guests have put forth a new modeling study which suggests that vigorous ventilation can cause a spike in viral concentrations. Leonard, hi. Welcome to the show. Tell us who you are and what you do at the lab. My name is Leonard Pease, and I'm an engineer here at PNNL. I'm a chemical engineer by training, but I've had the good fortune of having experiences working with viruses, working with aerosols. And so when this problem, COVID, came up as a technical problem, I became quite interested. Excellent. Thank you so much, Leonard. And Timothy, hi. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Tell us who you are and yeah. what you do at the lab. Hi there. My name's Tim Salisbury, and I'm a chief research scientist at PNNL. My background is in mechanical engineering controls and optimization. So my area of focus in recent years has been on applying controls and optimization methods and theories to energy systems in buildings, trying to get buildings to operate more energy efficiently while still providing a safe, healthy environment for the occupants. And buildings are responsible for a very large fraction of the energy use in, in countries such as the United States. So this has been an area that has been a particular focus for DOE and the nation for, for quite a while now. That's great. Let's start at the very beginning. COVID came upon us as a bit of an emergency and not a lot of people could foretell this was going to happen in the way that it happened before it happened to the world. When it occurred and this need came through for some kind of discovery about how COVID affects air, how were you approached? Um, I think when the country and the community in general realized that we had a pandemic on our hands, there was a clamor for more information. And we realized that we did not know much about this new type of virus. We didn't have a good understanding of how it spread. We didn't have an understanding of the symptoms, so many different aspects of this particular virus. And so there was a targeted effort by the DOE Office of Science to try to provide some answers to these questions. And our work at PNNL was part of a funded effort that included several national laboratories focused on this element of trying to figure out how COVID can spread in communities and 
what, what are the risk factors and what, what types of things we can do to try to mitigate those risks. And so when it comes to air in buildings, there are many different structures that come to mind, you know, homes, apartment buildings, offices, restaurants. But in essence, you studied how COVID travels by taking a closer look at the air handling systems of these structures. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So all those different types of buildings can seem very different from the outside, different designs, different architectural features, but often they share in common a ventilation system or a centralized air handling system that is used to move air around those different types of buildings. And so those structures within them contain an environment, and this is where people interact with each other, and that environment is pretty much enclosed. And the air handling system moves air around the building from one space to another. So this is sort of triggering some questions then about the virus of whether it's possible that you could have a release of a viral contamination in one part of a building, and whether that ventilation system in the building could then spread the virus to other parts of the building. So that's what we were kind of focused on with our research. Mm, Yeah. Leonard, how about for you? So uh, when uh, COVID-19 hit, uh, I remember I was on business travel and I was listening to all of the discussions uh, on the news about this argument that uh, we only needed to be six feet apart. And uh, I remember standing in a hotel room with the uh, ventilation to my back thinking, those little tiny particles and droplets have to travel farther than six feet due to the ventilation on the inside of the room. And that got me really thinking about some of the questions about how COVID works and about how things transmit both within buildings and in general. And I imagine sometimes to this day, you probably think about buildings and structures like we all do and say, you know, how does this virus move, right? There's that question, I think, in all of our minds. Absolutely. I want to remove COVID from the discussion just for a moment and and ask, why do structures have faster air exchange? Yeah, so structures really are there just to enclose an environment for the occupants. So it, it shelters us from the external environment. And so when you create this internal environment, it's like its own little ecosystem. What you have to consider then is that within that ecosystem, you've got to try to replenish the air, otherwise it it gets stagnant. So there's a certain amount of filtration and um, replenishment of outside air into that space. So all of those things are under control, but fundamentally it's the fact that you have a mechanical system doing this operation in a building that creates an airflow and air movement around the structure. So it's different than if you were in the external environment where you have this huge space where it's infinite, the size of Earth. So you've got a huge sink where all the particles can go to. But when you have a a smaller enclosed space, there's only a finite area or volume where things can go and all these mechanical systems control those elements. That makes perfect sense. Thank you. Can you describe vigorous ventilation in a setting and, and tell me how it might cause a spike in viral concentrations? Yeah. So some of the work we did was looking at different ventilation rates within a building. And what some people have done during this pandemic is to increase the ventilation rate inside a space, thinking that, well, that's going to get rid of the virus quicker. And so when we talk about vigorous ventilation, I think what you're alluding to is the faster movement of air in the space. Yeah. And so when, when you do that, though, if you have a centralized ventilation system, all you're doing really is moving the air more quickly around the whole space and mixing air from one space into other spaces at a faster rate. Ah, 
So what that can do, if you're in one room and you have a viral release, let's say, and then you, you have a higher ventilation rate, it's going to push those viral particles much faster than into other spaces in the building. So even though the, the viral particles will go away quicker too, you have a time period which has a higher concentration early on. So you have a, a spike in concentration, which would be higher than if you had a lower ventilation rate, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. Nick, I think this is a really important point because most of the modeling work that's been done to date has really looked at a single room. And, and so in a single room, of course, turn up that ventilation in any way you possibly can because it simply flows out and, and you're fine. In a building, that flow goes somewhere. So if it goes from the room where somebody's coughing through the air handling system into another room, that means that next person downstream is breathing in those particles that you just exhaled. Ah. And so in buildings, they're actually systems. And one part of the building is connected to the next part of the building. And it's that interplay of systems that becomes really compelling and really interesting. Wow. Can you please tell me about the secondhand smoke analogy in your paper? Yeah, I think this is a key point because a lot of smoke particles are about five microns in size. A micron is, is a relatively small measurement. My hair, for example, is 65 microns in diameter. And so we've taken a look at those particles that are of that size, which is about the same size as a lot of secondhand smoke. And what this means is we all know that if somebody's smoking in one room, you can smell it in the next room. Definitely. <laughs> And this just provides extra experience that we all have to show that respiratory droplets that contain viruses do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, you can be walking your dog and you smell cigarette smoke and you don't know where it's coming from. It's just there, right? Yep. Smoke is just something that helps explain how air travels, I think. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And that was another finding in our research, too, was that there's an assumption out there that if you just have more outside air, you're automatically bringing in fresh air, but that might not always be the case. So with the smoker analogy, you could have the smokers congregated outside of a building and the smoke ends up coming in through the intake into the building and then actually making the air quality worse. And similarly, you could potentially have that issue in buildings with the COVID situation too. If you had a congregation of people close to an air intake that were coughing or releasing viral particles, they could potentially enter the building from the outside. That was another unique thing we found as part of this research. Wow, yeah, so much to consider with this. Nick, just to summarize this really quickly, Outdoor air is not always fresh. Mm. Good point. We've all smelled, you know, like rotten fish walking along the lake, right? <laughs> or a smoker, you know, from, you don't need, you can't see them anywhere, but you smell it when you're out walking your dog or whatever. And so it makes perfect sense. The six foot argument is really great for coughing and sneezing. In that case, you can sort of model those coughs and sneezes as aerodynamic jets. It's a type of airflow pattern. You know, those really only persist over a finite distance, about between three and four feet. And if you put a little bit of a safety margin on top of it, you get about six feet. But that assumes that the air is completely quiescent. And that's really only an argument for those big droplets that fall to the ground, the type that are easily caught by a mask. The smaller droplets, on the other hand, they can persist for much larger distances. Okay. Explain the, the three different factors you looked at when modeling what happens when someone has a coughing fit in one room, in a multi-room office building. That was really what was unique about the research we did is that we focused on this multi-room situation. 
there had been other research looking at single room exposure, but we were interested in how potential particles released during a coughing bout or something similar could spread from one room to another. And in order to do this, so we, we wanted to evaluate the different aspects of operation of a ventilation system. And so we focused on three main parts. So the first one was the ventilation rate. So that's the, the volume of air that you're sending into the room. So that basically you have a fan that's circulating the air in the mechanical system. And so that it's the speed of the fan usually that determines the volume of air that's flowing into the different spaces. So we wanted to see what the effect was of varying the fan speed on the contamination levels in the, in the different rooms in the building. So that was one thing we looked at. Another aspect was the fraction of outdoor air that was introduced into the ventilation system. So typically in, in many buildings, you have the ability to control the outdoor air fraction by using dampers. So the dampers will allow you to bring in more or less outdoor air to be mixed with the recirculated air from the building. So that was another uh, feature that we looked at and tried to determine the sensitivity then of the particle concentrations to those different outdoor air fractions. And then finally, the third thing we looked at was the, the filtration. So these mechanical ventilation systems, they have a fan and they also have a filter that is designed to try to capture particles before they enter the building occupied spaces. And so we looked at various different types of filters to try to ascertain um, the effect of filtration on the spread of particles. And so we had these three, these are the three main driving factors in a mechanical ventilation system that a, an operator or a building uh, owner would have control over. So we wanted to see what the effect of those varying those would be. How did you simulate a five-minute coughing bout? We tracked the amount of material that was exposed in one room, and we tracked it through using differential equations through uh, each part of the uh, building and trying to figure out where it went and how much of it got there, how fast. So we got to use some pretty cool math. Nice. Did anything surprise you? When we started looking at outdoor air, there's been all of this discussion about increasing the amount of outdoor air. And what we found was interesting, and that is that in the source room, in that place where people are coughing, the outdoor air didn't really make that much of a difference at all. I think that was pretty surprising. And that's because the outdoor air doesn't go straight to the room where the person's coughing. It goes first through the ventilation system and then around. And so it doesn't really have a, a strong effect in that first room. It makes a substantial effect in the rooms that are connected by that air handling system because it dilutes out the virus containing uh, respiratory droplets in those settings. Yeah, it's so compelling. How do you best describe strong filtration? And what does the MERV in MERV 13 mean? A MERV rating means a minimum efficiency reporting value. And in our study, we took a look at conditions with no filtration, conditions with a MERV 8 filter, a MERV 11 filter, and a MERV 13 filter. MERV 8 filters before uh, COVID were fairly common. And now people are moving substantially into MERV 13 filters because they remove a higher fraction of respiratory droplets and respiratory particles from the air system or just from the air. Yeah, and I can maybe just add on to that, that the, the MERV number itself just relates to the efficiency of, of particle removal. So the, typically the MERV filters are graded based on what fraction of particles they remove between a certain particle size range. And the, there's a table that's issued. And, and so the higher the MERV rating, the better it is at filtering out particles from the airstream. What are some of the important factors to consider with this data? 
you know, one of the things that I began to appreciate in, in working closely with Tim and our, and our building specialists is just how varied each building is. Every building has a slightly different ventilation system, a slightly different set of rooms and the way they're positioned and the way they're structured. And all of those things matter in ways that I don't think I would have been able to predict at the beginning of this study. The other thing we just simply don't know and we're, you know, it varies across a person and across the course of the disease is how many of those little infectious viruses are in each of these respiratory droplets that make it through an air handling system. We chose in our study a rate of 100 quanta per hour, which is a fairly typical sort of number, but that can vary fairly dramatically over time. And it's something we still need more science to really understand how that number grows and shrinks over time. Okay, thank you. What are the energy cost considerations for building managers with regards to this? Yeah, thanks, Nick. That's actually a really good question because we're so focused on making sure that indoor air quality is good at the moment. And we've, in many cases, just forgotten about the energy efficiency efficiency of the building. And we have to be careful that we don't make too many drastic changes that can not only lead to huge energy penalties, but potentially damage the system too. So these are important things that we've been looking at. And the study that we've done, because we've looked at different operational aspects of the ventilation system, we can use that to inform what changes are the most effective to make in terms of mitigating the virus but which also minimize the energy penalty, which often accompanies those changes. But just from a high level, once you increase the ventilation in the building, you're using more energy to power the fan. So you're using more electricity to drive the fan if you increase your ventilation rate. And then if you bring in more outdoor air, what happens is that, especially in extreme conditions, when it's cold or if it's hot outside, you will put a big extra load on your heating and cooling systems that could dramatically increase the energy use. So there are those things, and like Leonard alluded to earlier, it's quite a complex system because many of these factors interact with each other. So determining what's the best combination for any given situation is actually non-trivial. Nick, I would just add one thing in the middle of that. What was surprising to me is just how much heating and cooling of our air is involved in energy costs. And so when we bring that outdoor air, because we've all been encouraged to increase the amount of outdoor air, we really are hitting a whole lot more energy from that particular piece, from that particular source. What's next? Are you continuing to study this topic? Well, we've been so excited about some of the modeling results that we recently we have taken on working in a building here on campus uh, with three rooms. And that building, we've now been able to expose that uh, building to different types of respiratory droplets. And our work in that area should be forthcoming here soon. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Well, we're definitely looking forward to that. What do you do in your spare time when you're not at the lab? Well, one of the things I really enjoy doing when I'm not at the lab is traveling internationally. Uh, I really enjoy learning different languages and learning about different cultures and and really getting to go and see them. So I'm really hoping that COVID-19 clears up soon so we can begin to travel again. Oh, man, that will be nice. Timothy, what about you? I enjoy uh, hiking. I like the outdoors. I play chess, too. I read a lot. And I have two teenage daughters, which keep me well occupied at the moment. I bet. (laughs) One more question for each of you. Describe, I guess, to me the feeling you have, the connectedness you have um, when discovering scientific outcomes like this and how it sort of fuels your passion to continue. For me, it's the challenge of the unknown. So 
the thing that has always appealed to me about research is that you don't know the answer beforehand. You, you don't know necessarily where you will end up. You might have a vague idea, but it's that exploration and discovery along the way. And often you end up in a different place than where <laughs> what you originally anticipated. So I think that's always been the appeal for me, the sort of adventurous intellectual aspect of the work. Mm, that's so well stated. Thank you, Timothy. How about for you, Leonard? You're, you're awfully quiet. No, I'm just thinking how to answer that question. <laughs> Tim did such a great job. Do I have to answer? <laughs> I think the thing that, that, that drives me to, to think about that is recognizing that real world problems affect real people. And if we can get at them and understand them a little bit better, we can help people in ways that we just can't without that information. So I think that for me, that really drives why I want to be engaged in these activities. That brings up an interesting question. Did you feel as if this was something that was kind of a, an emergency type of research? Is, are there timelines for situations like this when there's a lot of lives at stake, for instance, to get the research out quickly and to sort of put other work aside? We definitely had to do that. And we had to mobilize quite a big team within PNNL to work on this project. And it was definitely considered a high priority activity. It was a short time frame, and we had to produce a lot and yet still do rigorous work, make sure the science was, was solid, but within a short time frame. So it was definitely um, different to some of the other work that we've been doing here. Mm, that's really great. In terms of science, a lot of the big breakthroughs do come when you bring together people from these different backgrounds that have different ways of looking at the problem. So, so we had people with all different backgrounds and different skill sets, which was necessary really to, to address this problem. And that's not always typical. I mean, people get into their silos and they focus on their own ex area of expertise. It's so fascinating to think about as, as someone from the outside, like myself, that, you know, here we have this national problem, this international problem, this worldwide problem, and it's like we need action. And to think of these great minds coming together and just putting aside some projects that could wait and then focusing on a, a definite need right now and then collaborating in ways that they normally aren't accustomed to, to come up with, you know, this type of research is really fascinating. This has been happening over the entire world. It's not It's not just us. Um, there's an, an enormous amount of new scientific literature that's been coming out where people are crossing fields and crossing boundaries in ways that um, we, we, we just wouldn't have expected even a year ago. I think the scientific community broadly has been mobilized and, and people who used to work in catalysis are now thinking about how viruses decay and folks who used to be involved in looking at building efficiency are now thinking about how about how viruses move through uh, ventilation systems. And the world has really turned and, and done uh, work in ways that I don't think any of us would have imagined. We often think of scientists staying in their lanes or staying in their fields. And with a problem of this magnitude, that simply just doesn't work. Well, gentlemen, this has been so incredibly interesting. And thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Nick. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This has been great. It's also been a lot of fun, too. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to SciVibe. We're dedicated to sharing the excitement of discovery. If you had an aha moment while listening to SciVibe, please share and subscribe.